Now, spreading freedom across the nation, this is The Buck Sexton Show. All right, Team Buck, welcome back to the Freedom Hunt. We're joined now by Glenn Reynolds. He is a law professor and a columnist for USA Today. He also blogs at instapundent.com. And his USA Today article we're going to discuss is Trump is FDR with the fireside tweets. What's up, Glenn? Good to have you. Hey, great to be here. All right. So why is just talk to us about this a bit. Why is Trump FDR with fireside tweets? Well, you know, one of the interesting things about FDR is that uh, he got a lot of loyalty from people, not so much from his policies, because honestly, he ran on a very different platform than he governed on. and He kind of made it up as he went along. But because a lot of ordinary Americans who were hurting felt like he cared about them. Uh, he spoke to them directly in his fireside chats. He talked about their interests. Uh, and they felt an emotional connection with him and a sense that somebody was looking out for them that really sort of transcended any specific policy stuff. And I think a lot of that's true with Trump, too. Um, the white working class uh, supporters in particular, and the working class in general, black, white, whatever, uh, has been treated pretty badly by the people that run this country for quite a while and treated not only badly in terms of policy, but even more so with disdain. Uh, and I think that Trump, by treating working-class people with respect and acting like he cares about them, has really forged a kind of an emotional connection uh, that may turn out to be reminiscent to what FDR managed to do. So in the in the carrier deal, uh, people have been picking this apart now, and I know Trump has had some back and forth with a, a union boss who says that it wasn't as many jobs as Trump said it was, and that it's, it's a bit exaggerated. But regardless, it seems to be a public relations victory for Trump, I mean, because as you say, it makes it seem like he cares about individuals' actual jobs. Um, and whether it's 1,000 jobs or 700 jobs doesn't really matter. The, the messaging is still the same. And these are exactly the kinds, uh, these are exactly the kinds of employees and, and people that are just working for a living that Trump was saying all along on the campaign trail, he's going to help out. No, I mean, I think that's absolutely right. And, you know, he made that specific promise uh, about Carrier. Uh, President Obama actually mocked him about it and said, how's he going to do it? You got a magic wand? Uh, and then Trump went and did it. And I think that that looks pretty good. And it does send the symbol of caring. And, you know, there's a piece in the New York Post today by Selena Zito, who's a reporter who you know, really got out and talked to people all over flyover country and all the little towns in a way that very few reporters did during this election. And she says even the anti-Trump working-class voters are starting to have second thoughts, uh, and it's partly because they feel like Trump really has gone to work for them, and it's also because the Democrats uh, and sort of the pundit class have doubled down in their contempt uh, for working-class people, uh, basically saying, well, if you people gave us Trump, then screw you. Uh, so it's really uh, driving people into Trump's arms, uh, and I think that as long as the Democrats keep yammering about fake news and uh, you know deplorables and all that stuff, uh, that's going to continue as well. What do you think about the criticisms that are being leveled about about winners and you know picking winners and losers? Now, this is something you're hearing both from Democrats who want to undermine this sort of Trump pre-presidential victory, as well as a, a fair amount of conservatives who say that th this sets a bad precedent. I feel like there's a moment in time now where people are starting to starting to sense that the the perfect should not be the enemy of the good, or rather, yeah, free market principles are fantastic. But for example, is is a tax uh, is a tax break for a company 
is that cronyism or are we opposed to taxes and we want there to be tax breaks? I mean, it, it seems to me like there's a, a moment where we can have a discussion about how the market is not a completely level playing field right now. And so well, go ahead. Well, I mean, first of all, uh, talking about picking winners from Democrats is pretty rich, considering that the, uh, that's been Obama's policy right, for of years. Course. It's been complete cronyism. And, you know, Solyndra uh, was $700 million. Uh, this was $7 million. It was 1% of a Solyndra. And unlike Solyndra, actually did, like, save some jobs. So, I mean, I think, I think Democrats uh, have no basis to complain about this. Uh, their only complaint is that it's somebody else doing it uh, and not them. Uh, I mean, I do think there's a much more legitimate sort of, you know, conservative libertarian criticism about picking winners. Uh, but, you know, uh, what Trump actually has said is, uh, once my tax policy goes through, once I lower the corporate tax rate, uh, and once I make it possible for companies to bring a lot of money back from overseas, uh, everybody in their right mind is going to want to have a business here anyway. Uh, so the carrier thing is maybe more of a one-off uh, than, than the way he plans to do business all along. But now, if that'll turn out to be true, it'll be great. If, in fact, it doesn't, then it won't be. I mean, the tax code is, is 70,000 pages, not because it's trying to make the playing field level for everybody, right? I mean, this, this is part of, uh, I, I think, on, on the one hand, you have Trump putting people in places like we were talking about last hour, the Small Business Administration, to peel back regulations, the EPA to peel back regulations, to create that more... Uh, level playing field. But in the meantime, uh, there, are, is all, there are also a lot of imbalances. I mean, w- one thing that, I mean, you, you see it, I, I see it all the time on, on the media side of things. Uh, there are a lot of legacy institutions and not just regulations, but even laws that support certain people in the marketplace. And that is, there's current government intervention all over the place, what I'm trying to say. And I think it's interesting that there's this this sort of freak out when Trump engages in a form of government intervention and yet that's happening all the time already. Uh, it's, it, well, it, that's right. That's right. And, you know, Trump has never pretended to be a libertarian or even really a conservative. I mean, what he really is uh, is a sort of 70s Rust Belt Democrat, more in the mold of, you know, Scoop Jackson or uh, maybe even Dick Gephardt. And that's, uh, you know, and, and his policies are mostly in line with that. Now, 70s Rust Belt Democrats were conservative, but they, what the advantage they had over most current Democrats in the political class is they actually did like America and they like the American working class, uh, and I think that's you know that's why I say I think Trump may be the new FDR in that regard that he has a chance to forge a real bond with a segment of society that feels like it has not only been treated badly in an objective way but just looked down upon, and I think that contempt, uh, which I guess started back in the '70s maybe with Archie Bunker and all in the family, uh, that contempt for the working class from sort of the betters. Uh, openly expressed and proudly and smugly expressed is really the poison that's been in the American political system for a long time. And I think Trump is, is helping to draw that poison out by giving people a sense that somebody cares. Yeah, it's it seems to me that uh, a lot of the sort of free marketeers and, and free trade advocates out there, whether they mean to or not, they, they sort of are telling the particularly the, the white working class, but just the working class in this country in general. Well, yeah, you know, maybe you don't have a job, but you know your flat screen TV from Walmart's really cheap, and you know you can get a pair of jeans for ten bucks. And th- yeah, there are benefits, but there's also a, a sense of identity and belonging and purpose that comes from gainful employment. Uh, and and if and if the, the trade off for a lot of people is going to be you have cheaper goods, but you know you don't have a job here, well. That's something that should at least be addressed. I mean, I, I think that people want to want to believe 
that political leadership in this country will do something uh, with regard to making that situation better if they can. Well, I think it's funny that, like, in our political class, for that matter, our journalists uh, and such, these are people who get probably 99% of their self-image from their jobs, and yet they can't imagine that anybody else would feel the same way. Yeah, it's true. Uh, they seem to think that, and or, or also that they should just, you know, people should just retrain for other jobs or positions. It's, that's a lot easier said than done. I don't, I don't know a lot yeah. of journalists who want to become welders. No, and I don't know a lot of people who want to hire them if they did. Uh, I think that, you know, the, the retraining thing, I mean, the big problem is there's a lot of research that says that the retraining just doesn't work, that uh, people retrain for jobs and typically wind up, nonetheless, working for, you know, half the wages they got before their factory closed. Uh, so I think that's that's kind of a, you know, it, it's a sort of solution people like to wave their hands at to make it look like they've done something about the problem, but uh, it doesn't. Now, it, maybe there's not that much we can do. I mean, automation is still coming on. I guess we could do like New Jersey and, you know, ban self-service gas so people have jobs pumping gas and stuff. Uh, but I'm, I'm not necessarily suggesting Trump's policies are going to work. Uh, FDR's policies were actually disastrous. Uh, nonetheless, the fact that he looks like he cares politically is a really big deal. Yeah, because when you look at some of the, the jobs programs, Obama likes to, talk, likes to talk a lot about uh, green jobs, for example. Uh, that doesn't really make, I mean, unless you happen to be in an area of the country where those green jobs, which are almost across the border, subsidized by government in one form or another. Uh, if you're a Rust Belt person who works in a factory, if, if you're some of the, and, and again, there's the people that we believe decided this last election in favor of Trump. You don't really want to hear about green jobs, you know, and, and the sharing economy and Uber and all that stuff. Well, unless you live in New York, San Fran or you know, a, a big city, um, that doesn't necessarily do it for you either. And so to your point, e- even if Trump at a sort of a macroeconomic level isn't uh, is, isn't making sound decisions for the long run, in the short run, at least it's, it does speak to people and they care and it matters. And, you know, what's funny is Barack Obama once got that, because early on uh, he actually wanted to bring back manly jobs for working-class men and, and push back against his uh, advisors who said they should be steered into jobs like nursing, aides, and uh, other stuff. He said that's actually women's work, and they need to do something fits with how they define themselves as men. And this didn't go over well with the Democrats, and the feminists pushed back and didn't want the stimulus money going to uh, jobs that would employ men. So most of it got diverted to uh, health services and social services and um, basically going to women. But Obama's instincts on that were actually sound, and uh, he let that go. But I, I think Trump has more confidence in his instincts here. How, how do you think, uh, in terms of the, the positions that, that Trump has, I mean, obviously some of them have to go through confirmation and such, but the picks he's made uh, for the economy, for the regulatory agencies, uh, how do you think that's shaping up? I'm pretty happy with uh, a lot of them. I'm certainly very happy with the Mattis appointment, which actually seems to be pretty bipartisanly uh, approved. Uh, but the interesting thing is, overall, he's, you know, a lot of people thought he was going to come in and basically uh, uh, be a false flag and be a Democrat. But this is probably the most conservative executive branch we've seen in decades that he's putting together on all kinds of issues, from you know, the environment with the EPA pick to homeland security and immigration to, to small business to, I mean, you name it. Uh, and I think that uh, if he plays the Ben Carson right card right, the HUD appointment will actually help him make some inroads, which he's already starting to make among the black working class, uh, which has got to be the Democrats' worst nightmare. How is how would that work? You know, war game that for me a little bit. How would that work? I mean, Ben Carson as HUD as HUD uh, secretary, 
there, of course, every appointment that Trump makes, even Mattis got some pushback and they said that Democrats might not relax that seven year separation from military rule for him. And then they go, OK, OK, we, we won't put up a fight. Right. But even with Mattis, there was a little moment there where they thought they might stir up some trouble with Ben Carson. They're saying, oh, he has he doesn't have government experience. And, and clearly Democrats are opposed to it because they're just opposed to Trump. How could Carson be useful to the administration in the way that you're describing? Well, HUD does a lot of work in poor neighborhoods, which are frequently black, and uh, it is an easy thing to do to make them feel like the administration cares by actually helping people get jobs. And there was actually a really terrific piece uh, in the Christian Science Monitor just a couple of days ago uh, by Patrick Johnson there uh, on the growth of black working class support for Trump since the election. And uh, I think that, you know, if you, it goes back to the same thing. There's a substantial number of black people who'd rather have a job than a check. And to the extent that, uh, that Carson and Trump can help them get that and feel like that's what they want, uh, he, they can peel off some votes. And that's got to be, you know, the Democrats' worst nightmare. We were just talking about Pruitt, by the way, as the EPA pick. Any thoughts on that? Uh, I saw somebody on Tucker Carlson saying he, was, he shouldn't be pick, the pick because he sued the EPA, and I thought that was sort of a funny message for the Democrats to send. That's like saying you should never appoint somebody as attorney general who's defended a criminal defendant. Yeah, that, that they're making the case by trying not to make the case there for why Pruitt <laughs> so would be a, a, good, uh, a good EPA head. Uh, Glenn Reynolds is a law professor. He's a columnist for USA Today. Also, his blog is instapundent.com. Check out his latest on USA Today. Glenn, great to have you. Thanks for making the time. Thank you. Sponsor this half-hour team is Silencer Shop. If you've never thought about it before, I'm asking you to give it some consideration. A silencer for your firearm is a fantastic accessory, and Silencer Shop is the place to go. They've got the best prices with the best service. When you purchase a silencer from silencershop.com, you simply pick it up at a local dealer with no transfer fees and no shipping. Uh, a silencer in your firearm offers many advantages, such as better accuracy and reduced recoil. And when shooting with a silencer, shooting becomes a more social sport because it's easier to communicate. You can have more fun, enjoy the environment around you more, and plus it looks cool. So you should really check it out. Silencershop.com is the place to go. The staff there will help you out. You can call them, email them, check out the testimonials. They'll make sure that you are squared away. You go through the process as quickly as possible and you will be good to go. Maybe just in time for Christmas or I don't know how long the process takes, but Hopefully soon. Uh, SilencerShop.com. Again, SilencerShop.com. Help make the world a quieter place. And we will be right back. Buck Sexton. The Blaze Radio Network. Show. President Obama was interviewed on CNN last night talking about his legacy. It's pretty much what you're going to hear about for the next few weeks from Obama. There's really not, it's kind of amazing. There's really not that much time left. It's been eight years. I, I think back to when Obama won that election. I was in the CIA. I was overseas during the election. And I just, it's been so long since anybody other than Obama, you know, in my memory at least, since anybody other than Obama's in the White House. I was, man, I was 26 when there was a non-Obama president in the White House. It's been a while, eight years. It's kind of amazing when I think about it that way. Uh, so uh, Obama's talking about his legacy, and 
it's interesting that I there's going to be some fights over this or some disagreements. I don't know if people are going to fight you know, in the in the immediate term. But whether, whether he was a good president or not, how good of a president was he, all that sort of stuff. He had one moment of some uh, some honesty, which I was sort of surprised by. He was speaking to uh, Fareed Zakaria when he said that he underestimated ISIS. Play that clip. Let me ask you if it's possible in your position to be completely honest and say <laughs> the rise of the Islamic State surprised you. It took you by surprise. It took the administration by surprise. The ability of ISIL to initiate major land offenses, that was not on my intelligence radar screen. It's kind of a sort of kind of maybe way to say it there. Uh, first of all, that he insists on still on still calling it ISIL is is just it drives me insane. Right. ISIL. Why, why can't we just call it ISIS? Everyone else calls it ISIS except Obama the executive branch, the U.S. government, every uh, news outlet that I see, the, the, no one calls it ISIL except for the administration. And I know that people have said that because it's because of Israel. No, I, I really just think it's kind of an arrogance that you know they're saying it the right way. It's just the same reason Obama says ISIL, and you know the the government then does, of course, follows along with the president on this one because of the same reasons he says Pakistan and Taliban. You know, because just trying to show us all how sophisticated on these issues of international affairs and, and national security he is. But, uh, yeah, he definitely underestimated ISIL. ISIS, see? That's what happens when you hear it enough. Definitely underestimated them. Uh, I spoke to you yesterday about the uh, operation to take back Mosul. That that city has been in the hands of the Islamic State for two years. Uh, we are going to be hearing once the dust and and unfortunately the the blood finally bloodshed finally stops once the dust clears, uh, we're going to be hearing for quite some time about just how much of an atrocity that really was for that city, and one of the major debates that's going to come up about Obama's legacy, and you're going to see this fight over whether the status of forces agreement that George Bush signed was essentially uh, a tied Obama's hands. There's nothing he could do. Because Bush signed this agreement and had this agreement hammered out with the Iraqi government. So when Obama came into office, whoops, well, well, sorry, uh, don't believe that for a second. They used the previous administration's agreement. Remember, they're, they're not bound by it. You know, the new administration come in and say, let's let's renegotiate this. Uh, they used the new administration or the old administration's agreement as the excuse to pull out troops. And now we've more or less got the number of troops that Obama in Iraq that Obama probably would have been able to leave behind and maybe would have stabilized the whole thing and prevented at least, I couldn't have prevented the Syrian civil war, but it definitely could have prevented the jihadist blitzkrieg that came blistering through uh, northern Iraq, seizing cities and towns along the way, and eventually Mosul, and, and even going well beyond Mosul. I think it's easy to forget now. There was a time when there were Apache gunships, U.S. Apache gunships that were being used uh, within you know, a 20, 30 minute drive of Baghdad to fend off ISIS fighters who were trying to make a play for Baghdad itself. I mean, that's how bad things got while this uh, commander in chief was at the reins. So I think it's worth noting. Uh, 888-900-3393 team. We will be right back. The Buck Sexton Show on the Blaze Radio Network.
This is the Buck Sexton Show. Team, we're joined now by Kelsey Harkness. She is a writer at the Daily Signal. Kelsey, great to have you. Hi, Buck. Thanks for having me. So uh, tell me a bit about Betsy DeVos and Donald Trump and the possibility that together they could end Common Core. What's going on? Well, it's an interesting question about whether Betsy DeVos, Donald Trump, and a Republican administration can end Common Core. We know Common Core has received a lot of pushback uh, from a lot of grassroots polls. But the reality is Donald Trump and Betsy DeVos are very limited in what they can do to end Common Core. Common Core was adopted by the states, of course, at the hand of being coerced by the Obama administration with grants that made it extremely hard, if not impossible, to say no. But Common Core is no longer tied to those federal grants because there was so much pushback against it. And since it's no longer tied, states on their own can exit Common Core uh, by working with state lawmakers and the governor. But the reality is there, there are some things that Betsy DeVos can do at the education department, like ensuring that the laws on the books that say the federal government cannot be involved in curriculum decisions, she can make sure those laws are enforced. We can imagine the Obama administration may not be enforcing those. Uh, but the reality is, if, if you live in a state and you want to get your child out of Common Core, you have to do it at the grassroots level and call on your local lawmakers and governors. So, uh, Betsy DeVos, what's her background? I mean, she's going to be Trump's education secretary. What do we know about her? Betsy DeVos is from Michigan, and she has been involved in a number of education nonprofits. She comes from a wealthy family. She's a philanthropist, and uh, she she has worked on the education issue for a while. She served on the board of Jeb Bush's foundation, which is why there's still some questions, questions among conservatives about whether or not she's fully against Common Core, because as we all know, Jeb Bush actually supported the Common Core standards. So I think that there is sort of a trust but verify approach when it comes to Betsy DeVos. People will be watching to see whether or not she does uh, really encourage states to get out of Common Core. But really, her pet project is expected to be school vouchers. And school vouchers, what they are, is they would provide a check to a low-income family that's trapped in a failing school district and say, you know what, your child should not be forced to go to this terrible school which is failing its students. Here's money for you to enroll your child into a a private school of your choice, which is exactly the option that uh, a lot of lawmakers actually choose for their own children, which is ironic that so many of them fight against it. Tell me these six interesting facts. This is a piece uh, Kelsey has up on thedailysignal.com. Tell me about the six interesting facts about Elaine Chow, Trump's pick for transportation secretary. Yes, so Elaine Chow is more, um, she falls more into the establishment Republican uh, group because she has been around Washington, D.C. for a while. Of course, she is married to the Senate Majority Leader, and the two are sort of a power couple here in Washington, D.C. So I think that conservatives there, uh, she'll be leading the Department of Transportation. She's already uh, led the the Department of Labor under uh, President George W. Bush. And uh, we all heard Trump's promises when it came to infrastructure, improving airports, improving bridges, and and so forth. And she's going to be tasked with carrying that out. So it's certainly a big responsibility 
for her. But as we see clearly, uh, Trump actually is appointing a very diverse cabinet. Elaine Chao uh, is, is the first Asian American, uh, was the first Asian American to be appointed under the Bush administration to head a cabinet. And now she'll be the first to head two cabinets. Uh, so I think I think that she has a big task ahead of her with carrying out uh, President-elect Trump's infrastructure infrastructure plans. Uh, but she is very knowledgeable. She's worked at think, think tanks, including the Heritage Foundation, uh, where I'm employed. Uh, but she's very, very uh, experienced when it comes to policy. And Trump's EPA pick, we talked about him a little bit earlier in the show, Pruitt, he has a long history of fighting the EPA. Like what? Yeah, so Pruitt is, I, I just published a story in this last night. He's involved and has been involved in a number of lawsuits against the Obama administration's EPA uh, EPA uh, climate change agenda. Uh, he has challenged the Clean Power Plan, which uh, aims to combat global warming, warming the waters of the United States role, and the renewable fuel standard. He comes from a state that uh, is, has some of the most energy and oil companies in the country. So uh, he he doesn't deny that he's willing to go out and defend these companies and keep the keep their jobs and ensure that there's more jobs in this. If you Google an article about him right now, I found this interesting. So you're likely to f- come across a letter that some uh, lefty green groups have accused him of basically taking uh, taking orders from an energy company and special interest groups and using them uh, as part of his uh, formal uh, agenda against the EPA's climate change plans. Well, what's interesting, if you look at the groups who are behind this, the NRDC, which is Leonardo DiCaprio's pet project, the Sierra Club, they did exactly the same thing under the Obama administration. Uh, I wrote about this about two years ago where the uh, these green groups were accused uh, by Republicans of in Congress of colluding with the EPA in a number of manners which uh, they believe greatly compromised uh, the EPA's independent authority on a lot of these environmental issues. And last on the list here, Ben Carson, uh, HUD pick. What do you think Dr. Carson's going to do? Well, I'm sure your listeners are well familiar with Ben Carson. I think he's going to be a fascinating pick. He has uh, he has been criticized for his lack of uh, of agency and government experience, but the reality is he did a great job running for president of the United States. He, for a long time, has cared about low-income communities. It's where he came from. He, uh, I, I think he's an excellent communicator. He, he really, uh, I think, will go out to these low-income communities and families who are in need of the safety of a safety net and talk to them and really figure out how he can reform uh, HUD and what he can do to help uh, you know reduce a lot of the waste but maybe in I think there's a chance that he can inspire some of these low-income communities uh, to kind of get off their feet and use these government programs just for temporary means and uh, I, I really think he serves as an inspiration for them. Kelsey Harkness is a senior news producer at The Daily Signal on Twitter. She's at Kelsey J. Harkness. Great to have you, Kelsey. Thanks for stopping by the Freedom Hut. Thank you, Beth. Uh, team phone lines are open, 888-900-3393. We will be right back. This is the Buck Sexton Show.
on the Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to The Buck Sexton Show. Very interesting piece in the uh, Hollywood Reporter from earlier in the week. Not a newspaper, or not a newspaper, not a magazine or a website I'd spend much time on. But Time Warner, huge company, owns a lot of media properties, uh, cable provider. Uh, Time Warner CEO Jeffrey Bukes, I think you say his name. Maybe it's Bukes, but I think it's Bukes. Who knows? Let's call him Jeff. What's up, Jeff? He says Democrats were a bigger First Amendment threat than Trump. He was speaking to business insider CEO Henry Blodgett at a conference. And Blodgett said, uh, Blodgett asked him, rather, about Donald Trump complaining about CNN's coverage. And, you know, you, you hear this a lot now, that we should all be so worried for the future of democracy because Donald Trump is... Uh, going to do these terrible things in the media and he's going to, uh, you know, act like such a tyrant and all this stuff, right? There's there's a lot of that happening. There's a lot of that going on. And yet, here you have someone who is very plugged into the media scene, certainly a media elite, the Time Warner CEO, I'm sure this guy's making a ton of money, saying that the threat, this is the quote, the threat to the First Amendment came from the Democratic side more. He argued that journalists viewed uh, a Democratic plank overly charitably. Um, and he then goes into some of the other aspects of the First Amendment that they threatened. He just didn't, he doesn't take Trump seriously on threats to the First Amendment. And this is something that I think people have had to get used to, that just because Trump says something doesn't mean it's going to happen or he's serious. Um, but this is what Bukes had to say. That uh, The press tends to miss that because they tend to lean that way, uh, lean, lean left, and therefore they were supporting what they were viewing, I think overly charitably, as something in cleaning up money in politics when in fact what it would do is restrain multiple voices. So I thought the threat to the First Amendment came from the Democratic side more. I think there won't be a serious effort on the Republican side. Um Hillary Clinton, remember, often would yell about Citizens United on the campaign trail. And I've been saying this to you for quite some time, and I, I like saying it to you because it really hammers home the point. Citizens United was a Supreme Court case in which the government's position was that within either 30 or 60 days, depending on the medium used, they could ban expression about a political candidate in certain, you know, in certain ways. They're not going to ban CBS evening news from being in the tank for Hillary. They're, they're not going to ban NPR. But if you wanted to release a movie, in this case, a movie about Hillary Clinton and how awful she is, that would be restricted because it's campaign finance reform. No, that's just a limitation on free speech. That's all that is. Um, that's just violating the, the, the very a really central spirit of the First Amendment. And free expression about politics. If we don't have that, what what do we have in terms of a free press and freedom of speech? So interesting that that uh, Bukes here was willing to come out and say that. I, well, once you're worth a certain amount of money, I mean, we're going to see more and more of this. I think Trump has uh, established this for many others to see. 
you got to have enough cash in the bank that they can't just shake you down and scare you. Uh, if you're going to be somebody who's in a role like this, a CEO that speaks out in any sense about how the left controls media or how the left operates, if you're worried about where your next paycheck is coming from, it's going to be too much stress. So here you've got the CEO of Time Warner, as I said, huge company, saying that the threat to free speech comes from the left. And, and, it, and it came from the left openly during the campaign. It's, it's been around for a long time. And, and you go back and you look at the history of who's always trying to, to say that the government gets to tell you what you can say. And it's always on the left, right? Whether the fairness doctrine, all this campaign finance nonsense that they try to trot out there, it, it always comes from the left. You don't have conservatives, you don't have Republicans who are trying to use the power of government to force people to not talk about stuff. This is a specific, you know, there's a lot of stuff where you could say, you know, corruption, cronyism. There can be some on, on one side or the other, you know, a pox on both their houses, whatever. This is very specific to the progressive leftist mindset that the government, because they're so certain in their beliefs, they can't handle the uncertainty that would be caused by others challenging their beliefs. And here we've got a very prominent member of the media who's willing to say that. Um, here, here's some more. We were still before the election, and we know some of the strains of populism in the election on both sides. I'm not saying whether everybody thought it was the cable company merging with the phone company. They're different competitive issues, but it isn't that. I think that when it becomes clear what we're doing, it will become clear to everyone that it will be pro-competitive, pro-consumer, and improve competition. Well, this is just now sort of... Sorry, I, I actually uh, read the wrong quote to you there. That's <laughs> my bad. That's uh, him just talking about the merger, the Time Warner Comcast merger. Oh, yeah, that's going to make things more competitive, right? Look, people have their interests and they can advocate for their interests, but that's what I see happening there. Um, and uh, here you see they've got a budget, uh, a pretty hefty budget, a couple of billion dollars at HBO. Wow. Um, we're not spending our programming money on library product, we're doing original shows. We're increasing it. Yeah, look, HBO is doing a lot of great original programming, which is very expensive. I don't put Westworld in that category, though. I found Westworld to be pretty underwhelming, quite honestly. I know people like the philosophical side of it, and they like to have to think a lot about a show. I kind of like some, you know, this is going to sound bad. I like a fair amount of the thinking to be done for me by the writers in the sense that the story is coherent, and they surprise me with things, and it's clever, I mean, I am watching an HBO show really to be entertained. I'm not watching it so that I can be confused and befuddled afterwards and sort of wander around in a haze and think to myself, hmm, how am I exactly supposed to uh, interpret what I just saw there? So uh, a lot of the I'm still, by the way, bailed out on The Walking Dead. I haven't ever since that first episode i've been unwilling to go back to it it was just too much for me so i do that i mean there there is a line lost for me crossed that line which is a jj abrams show westworld is also a jj abrams show and i see similarities between lost and westworld in that there's no way they're going to be able to make this make sense and connect all the loose ends and somehow bring this bring this thing together no way they're going to need some sort of a cheap out, you know. At the end of Westworld, they're going to say, oh, you know, it was all Hurley's dream or whatever. Uh, so that's what I see happening there. Anyway, the, the threat of the First Amendment comes from the Democrats, though. That's the, uh, that's the main thread here, and even some very prominent media CEOs understand that. Uh, it's the left that wants to control speech. It's the left that wants to tell you what you can and cannot say, think, and do. 
And we should just be on guard about that. And remember that every time someone tries to bring up that Donald Trump is the real threat to the First Amendment. Yeah, I mean, he, he, he's some bluster on that stuff. But I, I think that history shows very clearly that if you're worried about being able to raise your voice and, and share your opinions, whether it's through uh, online means or some of the old school media that's out there, Democrats, the ones that are going to try to shut you down. Third hour, we're going to talk some national security and some other odds and ends we're going to throw in together. And wow, I can't believe Friday's almost already here. Hour three coming up, team. Be right back. You're listening to Buck Sexton on the Blaze Radio Network.